We are continuing a series of devotional messages. As I mentioned, we won't resume um, our work through the book of James until we meet again in the sanctuary, and we pray that that would be sometime soon. Also, I want you to be aware of the fact that we've not forgotten our church anniversary. We will celebrate with a, uh, a message geared towards understanding the nature and function of the church again when we resume in uh, the sanctuary. So we'll continue our devotional studies. And I, I want to read a passage, but it's going to take me a moment to actually open up that particular passage. And uh, just so that you'll be ready, uh, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. I'll read it, and then we will return to it to extract um, that which, would, uh, which we want to focus on. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes as follows. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And uh, again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, has called the Bible God's baby talk to us. It says, in essence, this is God condescending and speaking to us in language that's, that's easier for us to understand. And I want to link Calvin's statement with what the Apostle John says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may have life, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, what John says about uh, the reason he wrote the book and included the things that he did include, the reason that he gives for his gospel is really, I would say, true for all of scriptures. In other words, what John says that he has, has written so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ and in knowing that we would believe in him and have life because of our belief in him. So therefore, I would argue that the whole purpose or the primary purpose for the giving of scripture is to reveal Jesus as the Christ, the son of God, that believe and that believing in him, men and women would have eternal life in him. So to go back to the quote by John Calvin, the revelation of Jesus Christ is given to us in baby talk. The revelation of who Jesus is and the dynamics of salvation in him is given to us 
in baby talk. In other words, God is intentionally conveying the message, <coughs> the message of how he, <coughs> excuse me, of how he, uh, the immutably holy, just, and righteous God, saves undeserving sinners without any compromise of his divine integrity. He conveys this message to us in a way that's accessible. When we think of everything that is included in the salvation that God gives us in Christ, things, as Peter says, angels desire to look into, things that are according to the counsel of his own will, the, the same God whose, whose mind and whose ways are past our ability to find out, God has consciously conveyed those things to us in the message of the Bible. He has condescended to give us the message of salvation and all that it encompasses in the language of, of John Calvin in baby talk. Now, what I want to do is modernize Calvin's metaphor a bit. In other words, I don't want to just talk about baby talk, you know, like Google Gaga, because certainly that's not what Calvin meant. What Calvin meant is that God has taken, even as, as, as complex as the Bible is, what God has done in the Bible is reduce the weightiness of his divine counsel for our salvation, and, gave, and he has given it to us in bite-sized pieces, condescended in language and imagery that helps us to better understand what he is, the salvation that he's given us in Christ. So therefore, to modernize uh, his uh, Calvin's metaphor a bit about this being baby uh, talk, I would like to uh, liken the, the scriptures as God's baby talk, I'd liken it to a book that's written for children. A book that's written for children that includes illustrations. Illustrations that are intended to bring a clearer understanding to the written word. Now, you might remember as a child or reading to your children or grandchildren where there's a story and there's written words on one side, on one page, and on the page opposite, there's a picture to give you a sense of what is being read or the words that are, are conveyed. I certainly remember as a child, I was a big reader, and it was very helpful for me when I would come across new words or ideas uh, that I didn't quite grasp, and then there was a picture right next to the words so that I had a, at least a working idea of what the words were trying to convey. And I would argue that the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, through whom condemned sinners can receive eternal life, does not include visual pictures, other than in some children's Bibles, and certainly I do remember uh, children's Bibles that included pictures. So in our adult version of the Bible, we don't have pictures opposite pages of words, but I would argue that the words that are used are intended to convey a verbal picture. So there may not be visual pictures in the Bible, but there are word pictures. 
There are metaphors and analogies. And most importantly, there are rituals, there are physical structures, there are animals, there are garments, there are individuals who have been set apart for certain duties and offices. And, and there are also incidents in the history of particular people in all of these things, the animals, the physical structures, the, those who have been set apart in certain offices, the furniture, the place that's been designated uh, for a place of worship, even events and incidents that occur in the lives of certain people as they are recorded in the pages of scripture, all of these things illustrate to, various, to varying degrees the substance of Jesus' mission as the Messiah. In other words, the Bible conveys to us that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And in believing in him, we would have eternal life. And what the Bible also does is it illustrates that truth of Jesus being the Messiah by using any number of things to illustrate the substance of that fact. Now in theology, we talk about progressive revelation. What we mean by progressive revelation is that God's saving grace in and through Christ is progressively unveiled. In fact, one of my favorite Old Testament theologians uh, has indicated that Genesis, it begins with a promise in Genesis 3.15. And the rest of the Bible until the advent of Christ is really an explanation of or an illustration of what is promised in Genesis 3.15 and ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. So progressive revelation begins with promise and it ends in full and in, in fulfillment. The promise is given to Adam in Genesis 3:15, and the fulfillment is the incarnation of Jesus Christ and all that is associated with it. God promises in Genesis 3:15, one that would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And in that we see the promise of God of salvation through the person of Christ, because Christ is the promised seed in Genesis 3.15. Now, the truth that is promised, or the promise that's given in, in Genesis 3.15, we get the first progressive unveiling of it in verse 21 of chapter 3, where God takes the skins of an animal and covers Adam and Eve and replaces their faulty fig leaves. And that is really just a, a manifestation of what will be fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. But I would argue that not only do we see progressive revelation where we move from promise to fulfillment in the person of Christ, but there are statements here and there that are scattered throughout Scripture that if you understand the word picture, if you understand the setting and circumstances and what is being conveyed in that, 
then what they're doing is making statements based on word pictures or, or based on historical events or things. And it is stated in such a succinct way that we end up having a complete announcement of what the purpose of Christ is or the substance of the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3.15. In other words, we get in the word pictures that are scattered throughout the scriptures, we get a condensed version of all of the, what scriptures point to uh, concerning the person and work of Christ. Now, one example of this is John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is discoursing with Nicodemus, that, that teacher of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night and wondered how he could teach the things that he was teaching. But in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now this incident that Jesus is alluding to is actually a historical event. It's an, a historical event that's recorded in the book of Numbers. And in that instance, you'll remember where the people had been complaining and, and the Lord brought a curse on the camp where people were dying. And, and then as the solution, he tells Moses to take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And he says, anyone that looks at that serpent will live. And what Jesus is doing is he's equating the totality of his ministry to that historical event. And so if on the one hand, we have the historical event as it's recorded in in, in Numbers, Jesus is telling us what that means, that it's somehow an illustration. So that historical narrative becomes a picture, God using baby talk to explain the dynamics of Jesus' substitutionary and sacrificial death. In other words, all, all Jesus says, he doesn't give the historical background. All he says is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and people lived, so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, and anyone who believes will have eternal life. What Jesus has just done is explain why the, the purpose of his earthly ministry. And what is the purpose of his, his ministry? To reveal that he, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised anointed one, the Messiah, through whom condemned sinners would have the gift of eternal life. And so Jesus is saying, in essence, in that simple statement, he is saying that if you really want to see what I'm about, look at the word picture of the serpent in the wilderness that was raised by Moses. Well, in the text that we've chosen, Paul does the same thing. He codifies and condenses what theologians have written volumes upon volumes to explain concerning the person and work of Jesus. And by the way, let me just add this. 
that I would delve into the treasures that have been given to us by these theologians concerning the saving work of Christ and savor every moment of it. Certainly, when we, I think of writers like John Owen who had a way of just expanding a thought and taking you deeper and deeper into that thought. As, as great as those volumes are, and as concise or as complete and thorough as they attempt to be, there is nothing that can be read in 10 volumes of John Owen that is not captured in what Paul says in our text. And what Paul says is that Jesus Christ is our Passover. Simple statement. And in that simple statement, he says, he really gives us a condensed version of all the totality of the person and work of Christ in his earthly ministry. Jesus Christ is our Passover. What a wonderful statement. Owen couldn't say it better. Jonathan Edwards couldn't write it any more thorough. John Calvin, Martin Luther, none of the great church fathers. I, I, one of my favorite works is a two-volume set by Stephen Sharnock on the existence and attributes of God. As wonderful as that work is, and I read over it as often as I can, it doesn't say more than what Paul says in our text. Jesus Christ is our Passover. Now, here's the issue. He's simply, he's making a statement that is best understood against the setting in which it's given. In other words, there is a history to that statement. And of course, this is not only referring to the Passover tradition that had been passed on in the, uh, the nation of Israel and throughout the Jewish people, uh, but... He is really alluding to a singular event that was established as an ongoing feast for the people of God. So in order to understand the weightiness of what Paul is saying about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, one must understand what the Passover was about. And of course, the point of reference is Exodus chapter 12. And I just want to lift three things that are established in the Passover celebration as it is initiated, that is captured in this statement by Paul, that serves to the benefit and comfort and the nurturing of God's people until he returns. Three things. First off, the Passover, the institution and celebration of the Passover was an acknowledgement of new life or life being spared, of life being spared. Now remember what, what John says, the reason he writes the book of, of uh, or his gospel is so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the son of God and in believing that we would have eternal life. Well, here's eternal life portrayed for us in the institution of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, and specifically in verses 12 through 13. And here's the reason for the giving of the Passover. Here's what the Lord says. And by the way, you can read over it and you'll recognize that the Passover is instituted prior to the 10th and final plague against Egypt. 
But in verses 12 and 13, uh, Moses records these words, and God speaking through Moses, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And in that historical scenario, and God is talking about what actually takes place in Egypt, but in that scenario, as Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians, what he's talking about is not what will occur to Egypt, but he is pointing forward to the ultimate judgment day where the Lord will return to the earth in the person or when Christ will return to the earth as God's executioner upon the earth. And he will bring judgment against everyone where the blood of the lamb is not posted. Wherever the blood of the lamb is, he will pass over. And so when Paul says that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, what Paul is affirming is the truth of what the gospel presents, and that is Jesus has borne our wrath so that we do not have to fear the future wrath and judgment of God. Therefore, we have eternal life. The life of those whose, whose doorpost was covered with the blood of the Lamb, their life was spared. And so when Jesus in John's Gospel elsewhere says that I am the life and the I am the resurrection and the life, and if anyone believes in me, he will not die. Then he comes back and he says, but if you die, he will live again. So when, we, when Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb, what he's saying is that Jesus is the means by which we have been given the privilege of eternal life. The second thing that we see about the Passover, the Passover lamb also represented not just life that is spared, but the Passover lamb and that whole celebration celebrated freedom. Look in verses 30 through 32 of chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. And it says, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up and go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herd as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Over 400 years of bondage has been broken because of the Passover lamb. 
The nights in which they celebrated the Passover, the Lord set them free. And oftentimes in New Testament theology, we talk about uh, salvation in terms of being set free from Egyptian from from bondage in the same way that the children of Israel were set free from Egyptian bondage. It becomes a watershed and a, and a way to explain what we are in Christ. And so again, in quoting from Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, anyone who the Son sets free is free indeed. And you know how free the children of Israel were that night? When they left from Egyptian bondage, God told them, go to your Egyptian neighbors and ask for silver and gold and see won't they give it to you. You're free. What God has done because of the Lamb is he, is he has set us free from the demands of the law as the basis of our justification before God. In other words, yes, if anyone keeps all that the law requires, then you can enter into the holy place of the Lord. Of the, of the Lord. Of course, we know we haven't. But the blood of the Lamb, who is spotless, covers us so that we are set free from the bondage of trying to please God through the keeping of the law. We have been set free from the clutches of Satan. Yes, we still wrestle with our old nature, but Satan will not have dominion over us because we've been set free. We've been set free from the fear of death. We have been set free because the lamb, because Jesus is our Passover lamb. And just as he has given us eternal life, he has set us free from the bondage of being in Egypt or even the bondage of our fallen nature. We have been set free. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded not only of the life that we have been given, but we are reminded of the bondage that we have been freed from. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. Therefore, we have newness of life and we have been set free from the bondage of sin. We have been set free from the bondage of trying to, to gain acceptance before God on the basis of the law. We now find favor with God through our, our embrace of his son. Well, that brings us to a third and final Thing that is certainly captured in that single statement that Christ is our Passover lamb. In verses 17 through 19, we are reminded that for those whom Christ is the Passover lamb, we are supposed to have an otherworldly perspective, an otherworldly perspective. And here's what I mean by that. Actually, we'll look at verse 11 and then verses 17 through 19. In, uh, back in uh, Exodus chapter 12. In verse 11, it says, um, In this manner you shall eat, you shall eat it concerning the Passover meal, with your belt fastened and your sandals on, on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. In other words, they were to eat it even though they were at, in, a, in a place 
where they had been in prison or enslaved for over 400 years and have been in the land even longer than that with favor, but now they are to eat this meal as, as, as those who are under the urgency of leaving. In other words, there's, they, they are to eat it, not so that you can sit down and have another meal here, but they are in the process of becoming pilgrims. And it's for this reason that later when the, the meal itself is instituted, they're not only supposed to eat bread, but they're supposed to eat unleavened bread. So if you look in verses 17 through 19, uh, the Lord gives this instruction to Moses and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days to leaven, uh, for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native. You shall not eat, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Now the reason for unleavened bread is because leaven or yeast makes the bread rise and it takes longer to bake. So the purpose of the unleavened bread, even as it's passed on in the Passover ceremonies, is to remind God's people to have a sense of urgency that this place is not the end. Not even, certainly not when they instituted the Lord's Supper or when they instituted the Passover meal, they weren't at home. So eat with your sandals on and your belt uh, and your loins girded. Eat with your staff in your hand. And don't, and listen, you're in a hurry. You're passing through. So don't put leaven in the bread because you're not of this world. And so when, they, when, when the Passover was instituted, and even as they were to keep it in the wilderness, it was a reminder, you're not home. And even, brothers and sisters, when they entered into the promised land, because as we discover in uh, the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, that Joshua did not lead them to that final rest. So until we are rest at rest in the land that God has promised us a renewed earth every time we receive the Passover meal it should it should it should nurture in us an otherworldly perspective that we're not home yet Jesus captures this again using a word picture because when he institutes the Lord's Supper especially as it's recorded in Matthew he says he says eat this has been broken for you. This is my body that is broken for you. Then he reminds them. And drink the, cup of the, of, uh, drink the cup of the blood also. But he says this, I will not drink it with you until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
So when we say that Jesus is our Passover lamb, it is a reminder as we receive of him in the gospel, as we receive of him from the Lord's table. Yes, we have been given eternal life. Yes, we have been set free from the bondage of sin. But we're not home yet. And God has promised us another banquet. The book of Revelation is called the, 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 the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's then that we don't have to worry about the leavened bread or unleavened bread. See, what, what Paul is arguing here, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's addressing a sin that has surfaced within the body that the church has, has been negligent to address. And he says, get rid of the leaven. In other words, that which is of the old world, the old nature. Because we are together the unleavened bread. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It gives, it, 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 it increases the whole lump. And so our, our perspective is that we are not of this world. We're, we're passing through, but this behavior is of the old nature. And that's the old leaven. So he says, as long as we eat this meal, we're eating unleavened bread because we are the first fruit of a new generation. We are the new humanity that has been created in Christ Jesus. So our receiving of the Passover lamb is a reminder that we are not home yet until we are in the presence of the Lamb. And when we are in his presence, then he will not only share this meal, but he will share of that cup. Brothers and sisters, all of the Bible has been given to us so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in knowing that, we would believe unto eternal life. And again, a good summary of what the Bible is about is to tell us that Jesus, Jesus who is the Christ, is also our Passover lamb. He is our judgment day. He is our life. And he is our ultimate destination. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. Therefore, we are secure and we ought to be satisfied and our perspective on life should be shaped by, by the fact that he is our Passover lamb. So whatever we experience, whatever we see, whatever we endure on this side of heaven, let us be reminded that he is our Passover lamb. And when we are in him, since we are in him, we will be at home with him. But until then, as we partake, we're not at home. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we, we first thank you for your word. We thank you for the progressive unveiling of the message of your grace. We thank you that Jesus is the substance and the center of what you have revealed. And we thank you for those word pictures that enable us to see his work in a more concise and dynamic way. 
as we come to you, we are reminded that Jesus is our Passover lamb. In that he has borne our judgment, he has set us free, and he's made us pilgrims, pilgrims, soldiers, as we are awaiting his return. Let our perspective of life be shaped by the reality that is set before us in that statement. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for all that it teaches us, and we pray that we would be enriched by it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we prepare to receive the Lord's table, uh, let me remind you that this is extended to the body of Christ. And someone asked me from the last time, why didn't we qualify the table that, in the way that we ordinarily do? Well, we are offering this for those who have received the elements. And so um, this is for the body of Christ, those who are members of, of our local assembly, those who have made a credible profession of faith that uh, Jesus has lived for our righteousness, he has died for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. So again, I will say this for the benefit of those who are concerned about who is qualified to receive of the Lord's table. Number one, if you have made that credible profession to a church body, Number two, if the privileges have not been withheld from you by your local assembly, we encourage you to receive. As you are wrestling perhaps with issues internal or external, we encourage you to don't try to distance yourself from the elements of God's grace in Christ. But if the privileges have not been withheld formally by a local church assembly, then we invite you to receive with us. Now, for our preparatory scripture, I'll read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the volume or the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold. I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. 
he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a pure, a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the, con the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us ask God's blessings upon the table. Our God and our Father, we again thank you for your tender mercies in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the reminder of how great our sins are and how great our Savior is. That where sin did abound, grace does much more abound. We thank you for his perfect righteousness, which you have credited to us. We thank you for his purifying blood, which puts us in a right standing with you. And Father, we pray that, our, that the totality of our lives would be conformed to the grace that you have given in him, so that our desire to live for your glory would be deepened, that we would not be overwhelmed by the world or the things that we experience in and of ourselves or to us, but rather our hope and our confidence is unwavering as we are attached to he who has entered behind the veil. We thank you for those with whom we receive these elements, even in these extraordinary times and circumstances, but we know that we are yours and we are bound together one to another. Strengthen us now as we receive the emblems of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. Let us think of our bond to him and our bond with one another. Feed us now with your grace that we would be satisfied, we would be strengthened, we would be comforted, we would be encouraged even in days such as these. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The same night in which Jesus was arrested, he took bread and broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. And as they were eating, he took the cup also, and he blessed it and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which was shed for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink forth this this fruit of the vine, until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. 
May God's grace and mercy be with you. Thank you.